Last week was the first part of a two-part sermon, uh, which I'm calling Two Conversations with Jesus. Last week, if you were here, or even if you weren't here, we were talking about the story of Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night to engage him in some theological conversation. One of the more famous stories in the New Testament. And as a part of that lesson, there was this strange reference where Jesus talks about just as Moses had to lift up the serpent on a pole, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. I told you that was a really strange story, and I invited you to go home and read Numbers 21 to understand what was going on there. Relax, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many of you actually did the homework. But uh, if you did, just in case, I thought you might be interested in this picture of a sculpture of the bronze serpent on the pole that is sitting atop Mount Nebo in Jordan, looking across into the promised land. Today, we have the second part of um, the story, This the second conversation. John, as a literary tool, frequently pairs stories together so that the con- part of the message is in the contrast between the two stories. So if we only look at them one at a time, as we typically do on Sundays, you, you miss a lot of the meaning. The story today is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And it is a story that is intended, it is designed to completely blow your mind. Um, Maybe it doesn't for us today right away because we don't catch some of the irony, some of the shock that's in it. But do you remember maybe the first time that you ever realized that your parents were once teenagers like you were? And, you know, the first time you you really begin to wrap your mind around that fact, or maybe for the nerds amongst us, the first time you found out that Darth Vader was really Luke Skywalker's father, and everything that you thought was true all of a sudden is called into question and reordered and changed. That's what this story is intended to do. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making more disciples and baptizing more than John. Although Jesus' disciples were baptizing, not Jesus himself. Therefore, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Jesus responded, If you recognize God's gift, then who is saying to you, Give me some water to drink? You would be asking him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? 
you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands, and the man you are now, you are with now, isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship Him this way. God is Spirit. And it is necessary to worship God in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples asked each other, Has has someone brought him food? Jesus said to them, I am fed by the will of the one who sent me and by accomplishing his work. Don't you have a saying? Four more months and and then it's time for harvest. Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for the harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that those who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying. That one sows and another harvests. I have sent you to harvest what you didn't work hard for. Others worked hard, and you will share in their hard work. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified, He told me everything I've ever done. 
So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, what you said. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Most gracious God, may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my lips be found acceptable unto you. And either through me or in spite of me, may you speak to your people. Amen. The story begins with some, in between the Nicodemus story and the woman at the well story, there's a little story about John continuing his ministry of baptism in the Jordan. Jesus' disciples were doing so as well. And John saying, no, we're not in competition. Jesus is much greater than I am. But the Pharisees trying to stir up trouble because, or, or jealousy because Jesus' disciples were getting more people than John. But Jesus decides then that it's time to go back to Galilee. They were in Jerusalem. They come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And it says that he had to go to Samaria. Now when John in his gospel says Jesus has to do something, it's not a geographic necessity as much as it is a necessity that this is what the Father is calling him to do. Because in fact, no decent Jewish person would want to willingly set foot in Samaritan territory. The Jews and the Samaritans were Hatfields and McCoys. They did not go on. Looking at the gospel from last week, just to contrast the stories as we get into it so you can compare how these stories help interpret each other. We start out with Nicodemus. He was a man. He was named. He had status. We know who he was, what he was called. He was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the ruling council. He came to Jesus in the dark. Nick at night. It was a metaphor, not only did it happen to be nighttime when Nicodemus came. Nicodemus, when we say somebody's in the dark, we mean they're stumbling around and kind of clueless. And that is clearly the way Nicodemus is depicted in this story. He came to have a conversation with Jesus about faith. Abstractions, not faith itself. And in the process, he learned that God loves the world. And the story you just heard, by contrast, we have a woman. The cultural barriers between men and women in that culture, even to this day, are huge. A woman who was so marginalized and insignificant in the eyes of everybody but Jesus, that we don't even know her name. Far from being a religious leader, she was a religious outsider. She was a Samaritan. And more in a moment about why Samaritans and Jews were Hatfields in the poor. 
But, in contrast to Nicodemus, she's in the light. The setting is high noon, but she becomes metaphorically enlightened by her encounter with Jesus in this story. Nicodemus, he, he comes around by the end of the Gospel, but certainly not in chapter 3. Instead of having an abstract conversation about faith, she is becomes faith embodied. She Faith becomes who she is and what she's about. And instead of affirming the theological abstraction that God loves the world, she is the world. She is the folks on the other side of the boundaries, the non-religious, nominally religious that God so loves. So with all of that as background, let's begin to dive more deeply into the story. It said that Jesus had to go to through Samaria. They were... They were, they were in Jerusalem. In any, you, you see Jerusalem towards the bottom. Capernaum, their home base up the top of the Sea of Galilee. As the crow flies, they could have gone, would have gone straight through the region of Samaria. In fact, most Jews making that trip took the long way. They went over to the Jordan River sometimes even to the far side of the Jordan, and went up along the riverbanks rather than passing through Samaria. Here's a bit of a close-up of the map. It was about a 40-mile journey, so it probably took Jesus and the disciples traveling on foot three days or more to get there. They get to Sychar, the site of of a well-known place in the Old Testament in Genesis, Jacob's Well. Now, today, if we hear Samaritan and we almost can't resist putting the phrase good in front of it because even people who've never heard the Bible, the, the phrase good Samaritan, of course, comes from Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan in Luke chapter 15. But even people who have no clue where the phrase comes from, think of the good Sam Club and Camp Browns or Samaritan's Purse they might have heard of. Or there are a whole lot of hospitals across the country that are called Good Samaritan. Or Good Samaritan laws, which are meant to shield people who respond to a crisis, either with defibrillators or CPR or administering Narcan to someone that's overdosed, to protect those people who are acting like the Good Samaritan from being sued from liability cases. So in our minds, it's hard to get past that association, good Samaritan, to the, the original people who heard this story, to Jesus' disciples, to the early church. Good and Samaritan were two words that just didn't go together. And Luke tells this story the way he does, specifically for the shock value that it was the, the Samaritan is the hero of the story. Something similar is going on in this story. Because the Jews and the Samaritans were the Hatfields and the McCoys. They clearly just did not get along. Very quick review of, of the history of the area. In 931 B.C., after the death of Solomon, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel rebelled. There was a bloodless civil war. It was a tax revolt because Solomon had been taxing them severely to, to finance the building of his temple. And finally, when Solomon died, ten of the twelve tribes said, See ya, we're out of here, and formed what became known as Israel, the northern kingdom. 
Then about 150 years later, the Assyrian Empire conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. All of the ruling class, the aristocracy, the warrior class, the leadership were all killed outright or carried away into slavery. The only people that were left were the peasants, uneducated, working the land at a subsistence level, who without leadership and, and by intent with the, by the Assyrians, had to intermarry with the other pagan peoples around them. About 150 years later, the next world empire on the stage, the Babylonians conquered Judah, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem and the temple was. The temple was destroyed. Most of the leadership was killed off. Many of the people were carried away into slavery for a period of about 50 years. When the exiles of the, the two remaining tribes of Israel You've heard of the lost tribes of Israel. Those were the, the ten of the north. They're gone. All that's left are the people that by Jesus' day become known as the Samaritans. The distant cousins who used to be Jews but are kind of half pagan who have intermarried and are considered by the Jews to be half-breeds, mongrels, pagans. Worse than, than pagans who didn't know any better. So when the exiles came back to Judah and started to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem or the temple, and the Samaritans showed up saying, hey, we want to help too. The returning exile said, no way. You are not fit to be a part of the people of God. And they excluded them. That went over big, and the Samaritans from that point on began to try and actively obstruct the Jews attempt to rebuild their homeland. These kinds of skirmishes went on right up to the day of Jesus, climaxing in 130 B.C. when the Judeans, the folks from the south, led by the high priests from Jerusalem, go to Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans had built their own temple by this time and destroy the temple of the Samaritans. There's a long-standing feud that's been going on by the time of Jesus. Jews and Samaritans hate one another's guts. And if a Jew were to go through Samaritan territory taking the shortcut, chances are better than likely that they would be attacked as a hated enemy. But John says, Jesus had to go to Samaria. Uh, again, I'm indebted to um, Steve Thomason for the illustrations here. Jesus sends his disciples into town to get some food. It's high noon. It's hot. He's tired. They've been walking for about 40 miles, presumably over a period of days. He sits down at the well. And a Samaritan woman approaches. Now, it's almost like in, in some parts of the country, in major metropolitan areas, you, you have to be careful what color clothes you wear because there are gang colors that if you unknowingly wear the wrong color clothing, you might be associated with one or another gang. Something similar goes on here. The, the Jews and the Samaritans had distinctive styles of dress, distinctive patterns of how they wove their fabric. They were clearly identifiable at a distance. Now, hauling water from a well 
is still the way most of the people in the world today get their water. It's hard work. Water's heavy. And think about all the water you use in the course of the day. And we're just so spoiled, we assume you go turn the spigot and there's the water. Now imagine if you had to carry every drop of water you use in the course of the day at about seven and a half pounds per gallon. Carry it some distance from perhaps the only well in your community. That kind of work is done in the coolest part of the day. Early in the morning, late in the evening. This woman's showing up in the hottest part of the day. Already, if, if we lived in that kind of culture, we'd be asking questions. Why, why is she there at this time of day? Jesus asked her for a drink. And already the woman is just astonished because you're, you're a man and, and I'm a woman and you're, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and this conversation just isn't supposed to be happening. But Jesus presses on. He said, if, if you knew who it was that was asking, I would give you water, living water, that will spring up inside of you for, to eternal life. And last week, if you were here, remember I said eternal life is not just about duration. It's a quality of life here and now. But just like in the Nicodemus story, they're kind of talking on two levels past each other. With Nicodemus, it was born again versus born from above. Here, when Jesus says living water, that was would have been the common phrase of the day that they would use to talk about any water that came from a stream or a spring or a river, anything that wasn't stagnant, was living water, moving water. And so she's still thinking at the at the Literal level, while Jesus is talking at the spiritual level. How are you going to get any living, this living water? You don't even have a bucket. And Jesus begins to elaborate what he means by living water. He says, go, go and get your husband and bring him and we'll talk about it some more. She begins to him and haw and says, uh, 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 I don't have a husband. Jesus responds, I know. You've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now isn't your husband. Now, I suspect most, I mean, most of us have heard this story many times. And most of the times you've heard it, it's been interpreted in such a way that this woman, this, the Samaritans are an outcast people, and she's an outcast amongst the outcasts. She is. She is so sexually immoral that even the Samaritans don't want to have anything to do with it. I think that is likely a misreading of the text. Because we superimpose our cultural assumptions on the story. On a, it's a different culture. In that culture, women had no rights. Period. Women were, for the most part, regarded as property. They were given by their family to a man at roughly age 13. And their sole purpose beyond keeping house and cooking the food was to produce children. Women could not initiate a divorce. Only the man could. And yes, while one of the grounds that the rabbis of the day gave that a man could use as 
reason for a divorce might have been adultery. But some of the most famous rabbis of the day also said, and and also if, if she doesn't bear you any children, or if she's not a good cook, or if she yells too much, whatever that means, or if you just find somebody that you like better. The man was free to cast her aside. And in that culture, the woman didn't have many options. I mean, starting a business with what? Going back to work and going to get your real estate license or your nursing degree really wasn't an option. And so she has no choice but to attach herself to a man in some way, shape, or form. Now, it's possible she's been divorced five times. It's possible that one or more of her previous marriages might have been ended in her husband's death. And the man that she's living with, who is not her husband, it was the law of the day that if a man died, it, it was his brother's responsibility to take his sister-in-law into his home. Maybe that, we, we don't know, but I think that it's more likely that this woman was a victim of her culture, who had been treated as nothing more than an object, a disposable object by the men in her world to discard whenever they chose to, serially, time after time after time. But when Jesus obviously touches this sore point, she she begins by saying, well, obviously I see that you're a prophet to know all this stuff about me. But then she wants to change the subject. How often do we do that? You know, I don't know how it is in your extended family, but I know in my family growing up and even today that when, when the extended family gets together for holidays and, you know, the big meal and all that, you just know there are certain topics that you don't bring up because if you do, there's going to be an argument. Well, well, uh, you know, you, you Jews say that the proper place to worship is, is there in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans say the proper place is to worship here on Mount Gerizim. She's hoping to divert Jesus' attention to enter by raising an issue that she assumes is, is bound to start an argument between any Samaritan and any Jew. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. Notice what he doesn't say to her about her living situation and her history. He does not condemn her. He does not say that it's her fault. He does not say that it makes her somehow unacceptable in the eyes of God. He simply holds up a mirror for her to see her life as it is, as it's been, and then affirms that, you know, you Samaritans are a little confused about because faith comes from the Jews, but I'm here to tell you that the time is coming and it's now here when true worshipers won't worship on this mountain or that mountain. They won't squabble about what's the right place to worship, what's the right way to worship, what kind of music should we have in worship. How long should the sermon be? How well, should we have written prayers or spontaneous prayers or the schedule or any of the other things that we can tend to 
change the subject and find a way of arguing so that we're not focusing on God. Because, of course, really encountering the living God, who is spirit, who can go across any of the barriers that we might want to set up, that's frightening. That's scary. And so we either want to change the subject or focus on something else that's going to captivate the conversation. The day is coming, he says, and it's and it's already here when true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. She says, well, you know, I, I know that the Messiah is coming and when he gets here, he's going to straighten all this out. He'll explain it all to us. Now, what Jesus says in response, your Bible probably mistranslates. He does not say, it's me. He doesn't say, I'm that God. But he literally says, I am. The very same thing that God said to Moses from the burning bush. Tell Pharaoh that I am has sent you. The woman is starting to get it. She's starting to understand what this, that Jesus is more. At first she thought he must be a prophet because how else could he know these things about me? But now, the, the living water is starting to make sense. Worshiping in spirit and truth is starting to make sense. And she recognizes that I am is standing right there in front of her. At that point, she leaves her water jug and begins to run back to the city. And it's about that point that Jesus' disciples show up. They've been off foraging for food. I think John introduces this to break the story at this point to show us just how astonished the disciples were. What in the world is Jesus doing? A man talking to a woman. A Jew talking to a Samaritan. He knows better. Why in the world is he doing this? And yet they're too chicken. Even Peter doesn't speak up and put his foot in his mouth. They just say, Rabbi, it's, it's lunchtime. Have something to eat. And Jesus responds, "My, I have food that you don't know about. They think, well, so did some Samaritan bring a box lunch? He explains, my, my food is to do the will of my Father. Have you ever been engaged in something that was so engaging so engrossing, so immediately important to you that you even forgot to eat. I'll admit that that hasn't happened often in my experience, but it has happened. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. That doing the will of the Father is what gives Him nourishment and strength and renewal. And then he tells the disciples, open your eyes. Look around here in this enemy territory that you think you're in. Look at all of the pain and the hurt and the need 
of these people that God so desperately loves that the fields are wide for harvest. He talks about the distinction between the reaper and the sower. There's some distance in time between the act of sowing the seed and reaping the harvest. And so they're showing up on the reaping end of the, the calendar. But sometimes when we get involved in our when we try and do things in the church, we kind of get tunnel vision. We think that unless it happens on our watch, nothing worthwhile obviously happened before we showed up on the scene. And it's got to reach completion and fullness under our watch while we can be in control of it and take the credit for it. But Jesus says, no, that's not how it's worked. God's been at God has been at work loving the world a long time before we showed up and has planted seeds that we don't know anything about. And we get called in for, for a little part of the picture. And God will continue to be at work long after we're no longer on the scene. One commentator puts it this way, sometimes the immediate needs of the congregation or the demands of an aging building or the mere survival of a congregation become dominant in a congregation or a pastor's mind. Like the disciples, wondering where their next meal is going to come from. What's the next thing on the agenda? Instead, Jesus represents a bolder view of mission that involves completing God's work in the world. Jesus does not expect bold vision to bring, to, to belong to the faraway future. He urges his followers to join in creating that future that's already in our midst. Look around, Jesus says. Look at all of the mission field that we're standing here in the middle of. And yet all we can see is the next chore on the agenda. Who's gonna, who's gonna fix the church potluck lunch? and lose sight of something greater. John doesn't tell us exactly how the disciples respond because it's at this point that the scene changes again. The woman has run off to the town saying, Come and see. I met a man who told me everything I ever did. Can, can he be the Messiah? And all the people who come and respond say, yeah, By golly, they, they come and check it out. And by the end of the story, they're affirming that He is the Savior of the world. And Jesus stayed with them an additional two days. In enemy territory, He and the disciples linger for two days. They're shown hospitality and taken in. He teaches. He affirms the woman's dignity and worth. In John's Gospel, this nameless, nobody Samaritan woman becomes the first evangelist. And her model for evangelism, I think, is beautiful. She does not run into the city saying, hey, I've got it all figured out. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Uh, I believe in God the Father, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. And no, she says, I've experienced something that I don't really understand yet, but it blew my mind. And it's amazing. Come and see. Check it out for yourself. 
And many of the Samaritans responded in time. And so I conclude by asking you, where do you see yourself in these stories? Can you identify more with Nicodemus? He was conventionally religious. He had an identity. He was known in the community. He had had Sunday school perfect attendance pins down to his knees. He could quote scripture backwards and forwards. But for him, it was about who are the insiders and who are the outsiders? And where do we draw the line? And faith for him was an abstraction. Or do you identify more with the Samaritan woman? Have you ever felt ostracized? Or taken advantage of, overlooked, of no account to others, with a hungering and a thirsting in your soul that you have a hard time even identifying. But when someone offers the prospect of, of living water that bubbles up within you for to eternal life, you say, yes, give me some of that. And when someone talks about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, you say, I'm not sure what that means, but I'd sure like to find out. Or are you more like the disciples? What's the next thing on the calendar? What's the next chore? What's the next committee meeting? a program, or church supper, or fundraiser. Because we got to focus on the religious chores. If we don't do it, nobody else will. I invite you to read yourself into the story in one of those three places. And imagine what Jesus is saying to you about what it means to follow Him. Will you join me in the prayer of confession that you see on the screen? Let us pray together. Oh God, forgive us if we underestimate Your love, when we confine it to certain people and places, when we fail to recognize it in our own midst. Shock us out of our assumptions and narrow views of You, we pray. If we cannot imagine you're asking us for water to refresh your life in the world, Jesus Christ, open our eyes to the places where you sit and wait. When we reap without sowing and feel no gratitude for those who have gone before us, and become discouraged when we cannot see the harvest, remind us of your free gifts for our life, and forgive us for our lack of generosity of God. For we are your very human people, and we need your grace. Amen. Hear the good news. 
Jesus Christ died for us. Died for you. While we were still sinners. He didn't wait and say, okay, if you straighten your act up, then maybe I'll die for you. He already did it. So that we might be reconciled to God. So that we might receive the abundant grace that makes abundant, eternal life here and now possible for us and for all the people that we think live on the wrong side of whatever lines we choose to draw. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. As forgiven and forgiving people, I invite you to stand and greet one another with signs of Christian love and reconciliation. As the praise team comes forward, and we get a couple of volunteer ushers to uh, help us collect the morning offering. Can we uh, draft a couple of ushers? We'll worship Lord our God with our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings as we sing our closing song this morning.